Hello listeners, before diving into today's episode, I wanted to share a few ways you can go deeper with the ideas I talk about in this podcast and support my work. The first is my book, The Pathless Path, which many of you have probably already heard about, but if you haven't purchased it already, I really think you'll love it. The second is The Pathless Path Community, which I just opened up as a one-time pay-what-feels-right access fee. And in that group, you can meet hundreds of other people from around the world on unconventional paths like me. Finally, I'm working on a second book tentatively called Good Work, which is going to explore my deeper relationship with work and how that led to a lot of the transformations in my life. You can follow along in my newsletter, Pathless, which you can also find a link to that in the show notes if you want to learn more about that. Without further ado, let's dive into the show. Welcome to Reimagine Work, a podcast dedicated to questioning our modern conception of work and its role in our lives. I'm your host, Paul Millard, and I have conversations with philosophers, authors, creators, freelancers, and vagabonds who are trying to make sense of this question in their own lives. Join me while I try to navigate the emerging future of work. If you'd like to read more of my writing, explore this podcast, or find ways to work with me, you can go to think-boundless.com. Today, I'm talking with Amir Sally Hafendich, founder and CEO of Doist, a fully distributed remote company that creates productivity tools, Todoist and Twist. We'll dive into his fascinating story, moving from Bosnia to Denmark as a child, and how he started his remote company while in college and the thinking around how he runs that company. Welcome to the podcast, Amir. Thank you, and it's a pleasure to be here. I'm really excited to talk to you today. I think you have a lot of great ideas around what I'm seeing as emerging as potentially something that could really break through, I think, in 2020. Just the idea of remote work and what it unlocks for people. But I wanted to start with just a little bit more about who you are. So I'd love to hear more about who was the Amir that arrived in Denmark when your family emigrated there? as a child? Yeah, that's a good uh, question. And uh, I mean, something that I think is um, very critical to understand is kind of like uh, I was a refugee. So, you know, like we didn't really migrate because we wanted to. We were forced to do this because of like the Bosnian war. Um, so basically like, my family lost everything in, in, in the war and we ha- had to kind of like start from the, from scratch. Um, yeah, so I think like it was kind of very traumatic experience. I don't actually recall much of it, like the early childhood and stuff. And maybe like my brain has also just like blocked this off. Right. Uh, uh, yeah. So, I mean, it, it was pretty tough, but honestly, like I think for me as a child, like I didn't really understand much of it because I, I came to Denmark as like five or six year old. Um, and you don't really like, have, you know, the, the full understanding of the situation. And uh, I think maybe this was a like, much harder hit for like my brother and sister and my parents than actually me. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, I, I grew up in Denmark and um, I was actually the only foreigner in the whole school. Wow. <laughs> and I, I also started like attending a real uh, Danish schools in the fourth grade. So basically like I didn't have like any kindergarten um, or like the, the first couple of years, it was just like a school kind of like made up school at the refugee camp. Uh, so, I mean, uh, school was also very tough and also like I couldn't really speak the language probably. Uh, so yeah, I, I think like that was uh, probably also a very traumatic experience, but uh you know, I got accepted very well and uh, I never actually got like mobbed by the others or like, um, you know, so the people were very nice to me usually. Um, uh, but still like, you know, um, I kind of felt I didn't like fit in. And uh, uh, that is basically like, the, the, the early life story of, of mine. Are there any stories or moments that kind of stand out from going to school in Denmark and growing up there that maybe looking back shaped you a bit? I mean, something to, to, to note is like I started school very late and then also, you know, combined with uh, having very bad self-discipline and really being mostly interested in computers. I was like a really, really bad student, uh, so, and also like my, my parents had like some very tough jobs, a very tough job of running like a grocery store. So like they work almost all the time and they couldn't like really assist me in like the schoolwork. Um, so I struggled a lot and like uh, the teachers actually thought I was pretty, you know, like uh, delayed and probably like maybe also not that intelligent. Um, so I had like a special... Uh, I attend like special classes uh, for some time. Uh, yeah. And it's actually only like when I started to attend like the second year of high school that I actually really got up to speed with others and then uh, kind of accelerated from there. Um, but yeah, um, that is probably like the situation I, I recall the most from, from that day, uh, time. I think in reading your story and listening to some other podcasts, so I wanted to try and interview, ask you questions you haven't been asked before. There's a lot out there about you. But one thing that really stands out is you're able to over and over again, not follow the conventional wisdom. I'm wondering where you think that comes from, because I, I think it's both enabled you to build a pretty impressive remote company and just do a remote company, which when you were founding it, wasn't the norm? Yeah, that's a good question, Paul. And uh, I mean, maybe it's kind of like this upbringing uh, and like feeling like an outsider and uh, like not really like following the standard path, like nothing that I have done has actually been very standard. Um, and that combined maybe also like with first principles thinking that I got also inspired by uh, some some time ago. Um, I think those that is probably like the combination that, that makes that possible. Uh, this said, I do actually like read a lot and, you know, I get inspired a lot by others. Uh, it just, I just don't blindly go where others go. Uh, 
So for instance, like um, early on, I was kind of inspired by like the base camp uh, folks who I think have done like a pretty good job, but I just don't blindly follow what they are like preaching. And I also try to look at things like from a different perspective. Um, so for instance, like, you know, we are fully bootstrapped, but um, I don't really see like VC pad as like the evil pad and like VCs as destroying like societies and stuff like that. I mean, the narrative that, some people bring into it. Um, yeah. So mm, I think that's hard to, 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 to know like how this got created. But the thing is like, I always actually try to look at things from like different radical perspectives. And then I try to like create my own conclusion on things. Um, so for instance, like instead of, you know, just being like uh, VC is the only path forward or like bootstrapping, is the only path forward. I kind of like try to see like what are the different you know radicals preaching and what what is like the middle ground here. Um, yeah, yeah, that's that's harder than it seems. It uh, I think just because of the pressure of founding a company is so high, so many people just want to do what everyone else is doing just to be safe. Um, I'm wondering like how you actually go through that process. So for example, you have no outside investment, no plans to exit, right? So somewhat similar to Basecamp, um, they do have outside investment, but I don't think they have any voting rights on the shares. How did you, like, was it just web research, talking to people? How do you, how do you arrive at that um, view? First of all, like I had some experience with the VC pad. And I didn't really like it that much. Um, so, you know, um, that's how I kind of arrived to this, that like my last company was actually like uh, like VC backed uh, without any like real business model. And I didn't like this at all. Uh, so that's how I ri- arrived at the current <laughs> situation. But also something to know is like, I wouldn't actually oppose getting funding at some point or even like exiting. Um, and I think like exit is kind of like, um, it needs to be understood in the context that I don't really want to stop what I'm doing. Uh, but for instance, like doing, like becoming a public company, that's kind of like a, an exit, but it's kind of like an exit that doesn't really end your journey, especially like if you're smart and do it smartly. Um, so, I mean, j- just to give you like a, a bit uh, of overview of, on these things. So like, I think even like my perspective is kind of very balanced and I'm not really like a very radical uh, person that opposes anything. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it sounds like you try to look for the radical ideas to kind of figure out where the middle ground is and the reasonable solution. Uh, exactly. And honestly, like, um, like a wait, but why? I'm not sure if you know that blog, but it's an amazing yeah, blog. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and one of the recent articles he has is basically like the, the human, you know, like uh, mind and how we actually operate. Um, and, you know, I think like presenting black and white things and radical ideas is actually the easy path forward um, because, you know, we are kind of like very tribal by nature. So... Uh, you can see this like in politics and stuff like that. Um, and what I have actually learned is like maybe to tone this down and like maybe, you know, 
try to find the middle ground and look at things from different perspectives instead of like painting the world as like black versus white. Um, and I think if you see this around, like even I think like we can go back to Basecamp, um, you know, there's like no gray areas. Like it's very bombastic and it works really, really well, this kind of communication. That's why they do it. Uh, but it also like is a very, I think, um, dangerous way um, because, you know, most of things are kind of like balanced and you need to find like a middle way in almost any situation and not just like go from black to white or like, um, you know, do like propaganda aspects of like an idea um, or a movement. Yeah, and it seems the nuance aspect is such a core part of so many of the remote companies I talk to. What a lot of people seem to realize is as soon as you hire those first remote employees, you have to actually write down and put down what are the processes, what are the culture, what are the beliefs, what are the trade-offs. And it's actually a lot harder than people imagine, mostly because the model for work is in-person communication where a lot of these things are kind of picked up through practice rather than uh, figuring out what they are. Um, How, I mean, we could dive into a lot on remote working, but um, what are some of the other big shifts you've seen from just starting a remote company versus others? In in what sense, like uh, uh, shifts uh, in in working together or like... um... Yeah, so one of the big shifts I've seen is that it actually shifts the focus from work as the center of life and then designing your life around it with commutes, cars, everything, uh, to shifting more of what is the life you're living and then designing the work around it. Um, maybe you could reflect on that shift or if there are other shifts you've seen um, that have really been powerful from remote work. Yeah. I mean, the way that I look at it is is kind of like, it's a very radical way actually. And maybe not everybody will agree, but uh, I see it as like as a new industrialization um, because it's actually like the first time in human history that you can actually get an amazing job regardless of where you live. So you're not really like location bound anymore. Um, And I think this has like huge amounts of implications to everything. Uh, So like you said, like you can design your life as you like. Um, And if you actually also like are both accepting like location independence and also time independence, um, then you can, you know, do work from almost anywhere and you can structure your day as you like and you can still, you know, be productive and do amazing things. Uh, and I think this is actually the first time in history where this is actually possible. Um, at least do it that, like, in a in a high-scale uh, way. Um, yeah, so for me, that would be, like, a huge implication that has, like, all kinds of consequences. Uh, and... Maybe like some of the consequences that isn't talked about that much is basically like, um, you know, making this accessible to almost anybody in, on 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 Earth. Um, while like the old system, like you had to live like in London, like San Francisco to actually get like a, a tech job. Right now you can do that from like Africa or whatever. Right. Um, so, so I'm quite excited of actually how this affects not only work, but also life and like people around the world. 
Yeah, it's it's pretty incredible. And I think it is also a trend that scares people a bit because if you play out the implications, so I'm actually located in Taiwan and grew up in the U.S. And if you suddenly can hire globally, you have to quickly do the math that some very, very talented engineer in Taiwan, and there are tons of them, uh, is probably willing to work for far less of a salary than somebody in the U.S. or other high-cost regions. Um, so it becomes a lot more competitive. So I think people that are willing to be location independent might have a lot more options, but it, it's also pretty threatening to people who have relied on full-time work in their local economies. I mean, that is definitely true, but I think this would kind of be like a, a game uh, um, uh, yeah, and 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 the reason is I think also like salaries, as I see it, and also like as we see uh, it evolve, will kind of become global in this space. Um, so yeah, like um, uh, like already now, if you look at like the top remote companies, um, you know, location is kind of like maybe a small factor into the salary formula. It's not like the deciding factor like it is um, in, for regular companies. Um, and this actually has like huge amounts of implications, I think also to societies in like, at, at least like in the future um, where, you know, like a person, and we have this already right now inside our company, like they gain maybe like 10x of what they would actually gain uh, locally. Wow. And this has all kinds of implications, you know, for like their families and like the they can you know be a great help in their local communities. And if you have like a lot of these people, I think this is kind of start a trend. And then like this path of like actually getting like this kind of job will become much more popular. Yeah. Wow. That's pretty powerful. Um, I'd love to hear. So how, how are you actually thinking about compensation? Do you just start with some of the most competitive markets right now and orient around that? Because um, it's actually counter to what I would have thought. Um, yeah, I mean, I can, uh, I mean, this is kind of like a huge debate, you know, like, uh, and there's many ways you can actually look at this. I can tell you like, how we look at this um, and how our like formulas. Um, so basically, we actually use like the US market as the benchmark. Currently, um, and I think like I'm unsure like what percentile we are looking at, but it's like I don't know uh, over 75 percent uh, percentile that we look at, and then we base like the core salaries on that. And actually, like the 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 US market is by far like the the um, the most expensive market to hire from. Um, so. Um, that's basically how we do it. And I think like a lot of other remote companies do a similar thing uh, because like for these tech companies, what you actually care about is like hiring very talented people and you don't really care about like cost minimization or like paying as little as possible um, because, you know, like a great designer, a great engineer, support person, like marketing person can, you know, uh, bring in a lot more than you actually pay them. Um yeah, so that's at least how we look at this. And uh, in our cell phone location has like a 30% or can have like a 30% effect on the core salary that you get. Um, 
And as I see it, like as we evolve, we actually want to pay higher and higher salaries. Uh, so actually, like we have done like like significant salary raises uh, of, of I think at least like ten percent the last like eight or nine years. Um, so that's a bit about our salaries and, and how we think about it. Yeah, and it it seems like remote work is at the core of the shift towards. And I think we'll talk about this in a bit. It makes work a little more asynchronous, right? So you can't track and control people. I, I was actually watching one of the Q&As you did at a conference and somebody asked a question, which kind of cracked me up a bit, which was, how do you know if your remote workers are working? Like that would be a good question in any company. But um, we have this idea that we kind of need to control and monitor um, people, Right. And it seems that remote work is really at the center of a shift from this built in paradigm of you go to work for X number of hours to, all right, let's do great work. Does that resonate with what, how you're thinking about it? Um, it does. It does. And um, I mean, I think that's spot on and something that we don't do, like we don't track people. We don't actually know how much time they are spending and we don't really care about this Um I think like what you really need to track is kind of the output, like what are people actually contributing with um, and not, you know, like uh, the input is like ours. Uh, I think especially like in, in our work, that's like highly creative. Um, you know, you can kind of like go for like a two hour walk and do a lot of work and like solve really hard problems. Um, and maybe in a normal company, this wouldn't really be considered hard work, you know, because you're just like walking <laughs> um, and you're not really at your desk. Uh, yeah, so I think this shift is happening and I honestly don't only think this is happening like for remote companies, but like just like work in general, like, um, you know, with so much leverage that you have uh, like a, as a tech worker and so much creativity, like it becomes actually much more critical, like the solutions they come with then like the top, the amounts of time you spend on this. How do you think about uh, training? I think one thing I've, so I've done some, I did consulting in my past uh, career. I do freelance consulting now. And one thing I challenge executives on is tell me what your first week of training is about, right? And a lot of them will tell me it's about policies, procedures, and all these things. And I say, well, where's the training on like, how to do great work, how to learn, how, all these meta skills. Do you help people think about uh, developing these skills, like even things that might be out of your domain, like sleep, uh, health, um, doing deep work, learning how to learn? I mean, this is kind of like the core at what we do um, at this and what we actually want to promote is kind of like, you know, constant learning and constant growth of like the people that are inside the company and inside like this space as well. Like if you actually stop learning, um, like first of all, like this is a bad thing for the organization because a lot of stuff like the markets are moving so fast and the technologies are moving so fast that, you know, in some years, like um, you will not be able to do any kind of like meaningful contributions. And then also for the individual, like uh, they will actually be, uh, hard pressed to actually find uh, 
a job again if they actually if their skills stall. So let's say that you know like you have invested all your time in just like learning jQuery and you stopped at that, uh, and then you know like a few years in you have like a lot of other technologies uh, such as like React or Redux or whatever. Um, and if you actually didn't don't really evolve your skill set, then like finding a job doing jQuery right now will probably be very tough, as I would imagine. And I think this happens like in almost all kind of um, things, like design as well, like product work, and even maybe marketing, you know, um, and even maybe like the the leadership positions, like. If you still think you know the the right way to do stuff is kind of to track people uh, and to kind of like look at how many code lines they have committed, then you know you're kind of like very outdated and it will probably not be a very good uh, way to to succeed for the future. Um, yeah, so that's kind of like how we and I look at this. Yeah, do you and your team talk about? doing deep work and what that actually means? Oh, I mean, you know, we have huge threats about like uh, how to do better work, how to do deep work. Um, so I think that's kind of like a core thing that we actually do inside Doist. And so a short question here. One thing that jumped out is you give people 40 vacation days. Do people really take all 40 vacation days? I mean, um, uh, they do. They it's do. Awesome. And it's kind of like forced. Uh, yeah. I mean, the thing is like, you could actually do like unlimited vacation days. It doesn't really work that well. Like if you actually look at the data, uh, because, uh, you kind of like need to force people to do this. And then it also needs to like be everybody inside a company that does this. So if I, for example, only take like five days of vacation per year, you know, it sends like a very bad signal to the rest of the company. Another thing I've noticed about remote work is that it has this unintended side effect of just letting people breathe a little, letting them be a little more humid. I think on your site, you have a couple articles where you talk about parents and how they're just able to kind of embrace a little of the chaos that comes with that, letting their kids sit in on the video chats or even bringing their family to the retreats. How is that intentional? How you think about kind of including the broader aspects of people's lives? It just seems that remote work is really enables kind of breaking past that, like, I need to be in professional mode all the time mindset. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I think, like, something that's underrated for remote work, it's kind of, like, it's much more compatible with parenting because you kind of have, like, much more flexibility. Um, and I think it's also much actually better, for for instance, for, for uh, women, especially with, like, uh, longer maternity leave and also just, like... Um, that they can kind of like structure the days so they can still actually do some work, but also like, you know, they can be with, with their babies and and stuff. Uh, and of course for, for fathers as well. Uh, I mean, I have like a, a small daughter of like two weeks now and it's quite great to just like be able to, you know, like do an extra hour in the morning uh, with her or like, uh, you know, 
go home and, and, and work from home and be with her without really affecting my uh, my work that much. Um, yeah, so so I think like for, for parents, this is like a huge benefit uh, and for families as well. Uh, and maybe this is like underappreciated right now. Have you talked to a lot of other companies who might not be remote yet, but are thinking about making the transition and seeking you out for advice? Oh, I have talked with a lot of those. Yeah, <laughs> it's a very common uh, team. What are some of the like common uh, thoughts of resistance um, that they give you and how how do you help them reframe some of those things? I think just the the one around like, well, how do I keep track of what my people are doing? We kind of touched that on a bit. But uh, w- what are some of the common uh, pushbacks that uh, other founders or CEOs give you about remote work? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a great question. And I think something that's like really tough to do is like kind of change. Let's say that you actually have 20 people working from an office and then suddenly like you go in and like go remote all the way. Um, I think that's probably a very, very hard change to do because like remote work, especially like as we do it, like, you know, remote first, like there's no office, um, no work times and stuff like that. Uh, that's a really like huge paradigm shift and cultural shift. Um, and I think just like jumping in and doing this, that is not something that I recommend. Uh, so what I would actually recommend is like maybe, you know, do like remote one day per week or like two days per week and then like upgrade it gradually instead of like just like taking like a, a huge jump uh, into the unknown. And yeah, so that's one thing. And, and the other thing is basically like that you actually need to come up with like whole new ways to communicate, to document stuff. Um, I mean, um, because you just can't go over and like tap somebody on the shoulder. Um, you don't really see people. I mean, it, it's kind of like it has huge amounts of implications and maybe actually changing uh, the current companies to work fully remotely I'm actually unsure if that is a good idea or that works that well. Like maybe what you need to do is like create a new company where you like build stuff from scratch and where you actually hire people for for that kind of like mindset. Because also like remote work isn't for everybody, um, and you know, you know, some people don't really like it, and some people uh, are not very good at these positions because like you have to have a lot of like independence. Um, you have to kind of be self-managed, self-motivated. Um, there's also huge amounts of social implications on this. Um, yeah, so um, I would say that, you know, it's kind of a paradigm shift and uh, like normal companies, I doubt they can actually convert that easily to this new paradigm. Yeah, that's the feeling I get too. I just think the the kind of embedded beliefs are just so hard to overcome but it seems you'd have to be at least smaller or at least somewhat mobile or technology based already yeah i mean something that i see that is maybe going to be a trend is like the way that stripe is kind of like doing this like they are basically creating like a remote internal remote team of like 100 or 150 people 
that are just going to be run by like the remote first principles. And that is also a way you can do it is like maybe, um, you know, like you're creating like an iOS team, like maybe make that remote first and try that out first. And instead of like moving everybody over to this new paradigm. So Doist has two pieces of software. The first one was a to-do list productivity app called Todoist. And the second one was Twist. I'd love to dive into Twist, which is a asynchronous chat. So that just means whenever you're sending messages, it doesn't mean it's real-time communication. You're going to be receiving it at a later date or there are certain times you can check in um, on the communication. How did that tool arise? Was that something you built internally for your team at first? Yeah, I mean, actually, like the way that we do product development is um, is we we build stuff for ourselves. So that's the secret. <laughs> and um, Twist is the same. It's kind of like we actually were using Slack at the beginning, uh, but we could see like huge amounts of issues with Slack and the way that it was designed and it, the way that it worked that really didn't resemble the way that we wanted to work. Um, so that's how we actually came up with this tool. And where, especially like as a remote first company, like asynchronicity is very important if you actually want to scale across time zones. Uh, but it's also actually very critical for like deep work because in Twist, the messages aren't only like one-liners. They are more like, uh, emails or like an emails type of messages you send around. Um, so those are the two things and the history of, of the product. Yeah. Do you teach people certain ways of writing or help them develop those skills just to communicate clearer? Um, I mean, something also to note is, um, you know, you can kind of like design software in different ways that promote different type of interactions. So if you look at like the Slacks or like chat apps in general, um, the way they are designed is kind of like for these quick liners. Yeah, just send whatever you're thinking. <laughs> exactly. And like uh, it's basically like, um, you know, one line thinking all the way through. And that's what they promote. And what we actually want to promote is kind of like thoughtful and deep communication. So that's what we actually built around uh, the app for. It's basically like it promotes those, that kind of interaction. And you can see that people actually do this because the software kind of like promotes this. That's the default that people actually do. So like on Twist, you don't just send like one-liners. Uh, you actually try to create like a thoughtful content and share that with others. Yeah, it seems like Slack solved a real problem when it was emerging. It uh, made people realize, oh, we should actually like categorize, sort, make things searchable. But then it seems people also realize a couple of years later, oh, wait, I'm spending all my time just slacking rather than, uh, it's kind of funny, it's named Slack, but um, slacking rather than actually doing the work. How uh, have you had a lot of, reaction or interest in your app recently because of this? Um, I mean, honestly, like for us, this is kind of like a, a battle, you know, like, and we're kind of like a radical 
uh, in this way of, of thinking and the market itself, they have not really like, uh, you know, figured this out that it's actually like a real-time chat communication and one-line thinking isn't like the way to go. Um, so we do have like some interest in this, but I would also say that it's not kind of like, uh, you know, like um, we don't really have like product market fit because the market doesn't really value this that much right now. Uh, we hope, of course, like this changes, uh, but it's kind of like fighting, you know, against like the human nature because the thing to note is like real-time communication and, and chat with emojis and stuff. Like it's really, really fun and addictive. Um, so when you actually remove this from users, they actually feel like, um, you know, you have like really removed something great away from them. Uh, yeah. yeah, taking away those dopamine hits. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's kind of like, imagine like if you had just like free cocaine and it didn't really have like amounts <laughs> of like uh, negative effect aspects. That's basically like Slack. And then you try to kind of tell people that maybe like cocaine all the time isn't that good. Um, yeah. So you're offering in the spinach instead of the cocaine. Um, exactly. And like the only, and it's hard, you know, to kind of like promote this kind of mindset because it's only thing you can see like long-term. Um, yeah. So what I actually hope is like the, the work that we do at Twist on, for instance, like to Twist and even Twist itself kind of speaks for itself of like the effectiveness of this method. Yeah, and it, it's almost like the the product market fit for you might be the market that's emerging of the remote companies to be created who are starting and saying, okay, Slack doesn't look perfect. How do we actually do something from the start that's a little bit different? Yeah, but honestly, like we are not really seeing that. Like even like the uh, remote companies, they just say, okay, like being online all the time and chit-chatting all day long, but that's perfectly fine. Like, <laughs> and that's a uh, that that's what they do. Like, uh, and there's no, like, there's very few that actually go in and challenge uh, the status quo and like challenge, uh, you know, this line of thinking. And yeah, so uh, unfortunately, like, I don't really think like people have woken up yet um, to this fact. And maybe, you know, we are also wrong. That could also be an option. And like this asynchronous model is kind of the wrong model of the future. Uh, it's very hard to know. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, hopefully I can spread the word a little, but you hear from individuals uh, that they're frustrated with this. But I think, like you said, it's just so addictive and so rewarding to people that it's just going to be hard to change those behaviors. Uh, yeah, yeah. And I mean, also, like, if you look at who actually designed, like, this model, like, it's a gaming company. I, I did not uh, know that. Like, their first product was a game. Oh, yeah, like, uh, they pivoted away from a game to Slack. Wow. Um, That's a great fun uh, fact. Yeah, so that, yeah, so that kind of also tells you a bit, like, like, like what kind of elements are used to kind of, like, create a product like that. I'm really energized by companies like yours who really seem to be giving power back to individuals, but in the same sense, you're really aligning with unleashing kind of people's creative potential, their freedom to live the lives that's as they 
uh, please, what, like, what advice would you give people that are either in traditional organizations or other uh, remote companies for some of the things you guys have done really well um, that you wish more people knew about? I mean, that's a good question, Paul. Um, I, I think definitely like asynchronous uh, communication and lifestyle is kind of a huge part. And I really hope like people actually take this more seriously. So that's one aspect. Uh, another aspect, and it's like maybe to do is related. It's kind of like uh, that most people just wing things and they don't really have like the personal productivity system um, where they can actually like, you know, plan their days, execute their days and have a, like um, a prioritization of like the stuff that they actually want to spend time on and uh, plan that and execute that. Um and for me, personally, like that's kind of like the, the mission that we are on is kind of like enabling like better communication, but also like better organization, uh, because I think that can really like unlock like a ton of human potential. Yeah, that's great. Uh, I'd love to hear what influence uh, Denmark has had on your mindset around work. So I did some work in Denmark and Copenhagen for a bit, and I'm forgetting the word now, but... My colleagues introduced me to this word that had something to do with work life, intru- um, work life integration, or just bringing joy to kind of all aspects of your life. Totally forget what the word is, but it was one of these untranslatable words and ideas that uh, seemed to really be embraced and led to a lot of uh, uh, a lot different perspectives than some of the American uh, offices I was working in in the t- at the time. I mean, honestly, like I think the stuff that Scandinavia does uh, is really, really well. And it's not like only uh, Denmark, but also like Norway and Sweden and Finland. Uh, so I think like a lot of other countries could actually and people could get inspired by that. Because in Denmark, like you actually don't really work all the time. Uh, I think like the, the standard work with is 37 hours. Um, and the thing to note about that is kind of like they work those hours, but it's like really, really efficient and there's like no fooling around. Uh, And that's something that really impressed me a lot because in a lot of other cultures, like maybe people work like 50 hours, uh, but most of that work is kind of like very unfocused and it's like very, um, you know, like uh, it's not very efficient. so that's one aspect. And I think the word that you're probably looking at is maybe hygge. Um, I'm unsure, but... Uh, yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, that's kind of like the... It's very hard, to, like it's hard to translate it, but it's kind of like that you're just enjoying the the little stuff and like the, the moment, the atmosphere. Um, and you usually do that with other f- people, uh, you know, people that you care about. But you can also do it like solo, like you can actually like, you know, create a cup of coffee and like just, you know, do some coding. And then that is kind of like a great moment. Uh, and they, uh, the society really like celebrates those kind of moments and tries to kind of optimize towards that. Uh, so like the whole way that you actually structure, like, uh, I mean, for instance, like Christmas is upcoming and they... Uh, I think like some of the nicest like Christmas decorations can be found like in in 
in Denmark. Uh, uh, and it kind of creates this atmosphere. And then it's much easier to kind of get into the mood of like, you know, spending time with your family and like, you know, like with a hot cup of cocoa or something like that and enjoying the moment. Uh, yeah. Wow. I love that. Where would you like to point people if they want to learn more about your apps, uh, Twist or Todoist, um, or just more about your writing on running a remote company? Yeah, honestly, like uh, the thing with us is like we share a ton of stuff with uh, with people. So we have a blog called um, Balance and Ambition um, on uh, doist.com. You can access it from there. And we have basically, like, you know, shared a ton over the years. We also have like a, a remote work academy where we have basically like, collected the best tips from us and from also some of the other companies such as like Buffer and, you know, created guides of various different things that are remote work related. So those are, I think, the best like resources we have. And then I also like tweet uh, maybe not a lot, but I tweet sometimes on Amix 3K. Uh, so yeah, you can also like follow me there, and like I usually post uh, stuff about work and like productivity, deep work. Um, yeah, fantastic. Well, it was a pleasure to talk to you today, Amir. I wish you continued luck uh, with the company, and uh, appreciate the work you're doing. Paul, it was a pleasure speaking with you and uh, thanks a lot for you know having me here. I hope people will find this enjoyable. Thanks for listening to Reimagine Work. I'm having a ton of fun doing this podcast. One friend even reached out and said it's like a really professional coffee chat conversation from business school. I'm not sure what to make of that, but I'm going to put that one in the positive column for now. If you have feedback for me similar to that, I'd love to hear it. Shoot me a note, reach out, message me on Twitter. And if you want to support the podcast, you know how to do it. Go to iTunes. You can give it a rating. You can share it with a friend. And if you want to offer a financial contribution or gift, you can do that in the link in the podcast. Thanks for listening and have a good week. Hey, all. Thanks for listening to the episode. I really appreciate the support and especially always love when people reach out letting me know what they think about the specific episodes. If you want to go deeper into Pathless Path World, you can, of course, check out my book. It's sold. It's going to hit 50000 soon. I think by the time you're hearing this, it will probably have already sold 50000 which is mind-blowing. But I continue all the support of people that buy and share the book. If you want to meet others on Pathless Paths, I have a community, which you can find at pathlesspath.com slash membership, and you can join and meet hundreds of others around the world trying to make sense of weird paths and meeting others along the way. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you have a good day.